This episode of the Windows Into the Bible podcast is brought to you by Windows Into the Bible University, the best way for you to continue studying and learning about the words of the Bible through the world of the Bible. With affordable monthly and annual membership plans, in addition to some incredible free courses and materials, Windows Into the Bible University is a resource like nothing that's out there. Courses are available online, on demand, with video and audio lessons, so there's no such thing as falling behind. You decide the pace you learn at, and we provide you with everything you need to study your Bible like never before. Some of our most popular courses include What is the Bible? Windows into the Bible, the theology of Jesus, and much more. These courses are expert-led with college-level learning and materials at a fraction of the college cost. We guarantee you'll never look at the Bible the same again. Enroll today at WITBUniversity.com. That's WITBUniversity.com. Listening to the Windows into the Bible podcast with Mark Turnage. Reading the Bible with understanding requires reading the words of the Bible within the world of the Bible. This podcast engages the spatial, historical, cultural, and spiritual world of the Bible to help transform how you read and understand the Bible. Have questions or want to interact with Mark? Tweet us using the hashtag WITBQuestions or email them to questions at WITBpodcast.com. For more insights, information about the podcast, and bonus resources and notes for each episode, visit WITBpodcast.com. Now, let's get into today's episode. Hi, I'm Mark. Do you ever feel confused when you read the Bible? Do you feel like you're missing things that the author intended for you to understand? Would you like to gain clarity and confidence in reading the Bible? Welcome to the Windows into the Bible podcast, where we use the world of the Bible to help you understand the words of the Bible. I am thrilled to welcome to the podcast today, Dr. Dan Gertner. He has published widely in the field of New Testament and Second Temple Period Judaism, most notably the award-winning T.N.T. Clark Encyclopedia of Second Temple Period Judaism, which he edited together with Lauren Stukenbroek. His primary research interests lie in the Gospels and their interface with the Hebrew Bible and Second Temple Judaism, as in his published dissertation, The Torn Veil, Matthew's Exposition of the Death of Jesus. He is currently writing the Word Biblical Commentary on the Gospel of Matthew, and also last year he had published through Baker Publishing, introducing the Pseudepigrapha of the Second Temple Judaism, Message, Context, and Significant, which is an absolutely fabulous introduction to the Pseudepigrapha. So Dan, thanks for joining us, and welcome to the podcast. It's my pleasure, Mark. Thank you. So to kind of introduce yourself a bit to our listeners, can you talk to us a bit about your own academic journey? How did you get interested in the intersection between Hebrew Bible, Second Temple Period Judaism, and New Testament studies? Yeah, that's a great question. I really, uh, as a as a practicing Christian, as a believing Christian, I read my Bible and I, I I recognize early on after becoming a Christian that there seem to be a lot of things that are presumed by the authors that I simply don't know, uh, and so that caused me to go more deeply into the Hebrew Bible, the Old Testament. And I find that there are still things that are practices and beliefs within the Gospels themselves, where Jesus is debating with the Pharisees or debates about ritual purity or uh, those sorts of things, which seem to be assumed by the authors and assumed by Jesus that I simply didn't know anything about. And so my interest in the, the subject matter of the Hebrew Bible as, as the context for 
the New Testament, as well as Second Temple Judaism, is really to better understand the New Testament contextually. Uh, you, you speak of the historical and geographical kind of background uh, considerably, Mark, and, and I love that material as well. And I also like to get into the literary kind of context. For me, a lot of people are familiar with some of the Dead Sea Scrolls. I wanted to get into an aspect of Judaism around the time of the New Testament with my pseudepigrapha book that a lot of people are have heard about, but can barely pronounce and <laughs> really don't know anything of what they're about. So for me, my interest in the Second Temple Judaism as context for the New Testament is really for my exegesis of the New Testament. But I really wanted to be able to interpret the New Testament and utilize the very best scholarship and, and the primary sources of Second Temple Judaism while respecting them in their own rights. I didn't want to pillage them as simply background. I wanted to understand them in their own literary, historical, and theological, as well as political and geographical contexts before I use them as any kind of informing of my reading the New Testament. So I wanted to be a student of the texts that are going to help me to better read the New Testament. No, and that's that's a very important point that you made, The not just going and pilfering potential parallels between New Testament and the literary sources of ancient Judaism, but first grappling with those literary sources as things unto themselves um, and realizing that at times we even find the New Testament in conversation on the other side of the, the discussion from where those sources themselves in terms of their outlook and worldview and so forth. For our listeners that maybe they've heard of the pseudepigrapha, they, like you said, it's kind of a hard word for them to pronounce or spell, can you give us a, a good summary of what is the Jewish pseudepigrapha? That's really complicated. And, and the reason it's complicated, Mark, is because it's really a definition defined by what it isn't. It's primarily not found in the Dead Sea Scrolls. It's not among the so-called Old Testament Apocrypha, which are right. typically Greek translations of Old Testament books that are not found in Hebrew. And it's not in the Old or New Testament. So it's sort of like a leftover. There's sort of maybe a good way to think of it is an undefined leftover category of Jewish writings from around the time of Jesus. Now, technically, the word pseudepigrapha means false writing or falsely attributed writing. And, and that's kind of an unfortunate term because it, it leads people to believe, for example, the book of First Enoch is made of a, a collection of writings. And most of them are in some way affiliated with Enoch uh, from the book of Genesis. But everybody who reads this knows that by the time first Enoch is written, let's just say the earliest part, uh, the book of Watchers, first Enoch 1 through 36, that Enoch was long dead and that he didn't really write it. So people are writing in Enoch's names or using him in, in their stories to tell another story. But drawing from the reputation that Enoch has given in biblical history. So the notion in English of, of calling them pseudepigrapha, of falsely attributed writing, makes it sound like the authors of First Enoch, for example, are trying to trick you and make you think that this was really written by Enoch when it really wasn't. And that's not the intent at all. Right. They're trying to use either people or traditions or stories that come from various portions of the Hebrew Bible or the Old Testament and recast it into uh, their own context. For example, if I were to, speaking in an American context, I'm an American, I, I work primarily in the United States. If I were to speak about racial tensions that are occurring between African Americans and, and white Americans going on, let's just say in Minneapolis in the last several years, if I wrote an editorial for a newspaper and signed it Abraham Lincoln, I'm right. not claiming to be Abraham Lincoln. I'm evoking a context from American history where Abraham Lincoln was very important to speak into a contemporary context. I think that's a helpful analogy for understanding what the pseudepigrapha are. 
They're utilizing people and traditions from their sacred literature and, and history and using them to speak into their own situation. There's a lot of problems with defining further what those texts are. There's problems in defining whether some of these pseudepigrapha date from the time of Jesus or earlier or later. There's debates as to whether some of these are Christian or not Christian. The nice thing about the Dead Sea Scrolls is they were all found in the environs of the Dead Sea, and they all date from the middle of the first century AD or CE or earlier. Uh, that's not the case with the pseudepigrapha. Some right. of them are preserved in their original language. Some of them are preserved only in a translation from the original language. Some of them are preserved only by Christians. Most of them are preserved only by Christians, even if they're Jewish, and they're preserved in translations of the original translation. So it, it's difficult to sort of unscramble the egg, so to speak, to, to discern what, what are really Jewish texts that go from the time of Jesus and which aren't. That's part of what I try to do in the book is unscramble the egg a little bit. And, and lay out these these writings for the readers. Well, and I think it's also important to note that we don't necessarily have one codified body of pseudepigrapha, that these are literary works that, you know, have, as you, you've mentioned, most of them coming to us in translation that are kind of scattered all over. And there isn't an ancient library or book somewhere that, you know, collects all of what scholars deem today as pseudepigraphic. And uh, that's, a, I think that's also important, you know, for people to keep in mind that a lot of the collections that you can go out and read in English translation today, that's being pulled together by by scholars who are trying to pull these different works that you're talking about together. If you were to say maybe three or five big points where you feel that the pseudepigrapha is shedding light on the world of the Gospels, the world of the New Testament, what would be some of those highlights for you? Well, I think one of the things, and even without necessarily going into detail of specific texts, we can think that these writings are in the air, so to speak. They're unfamiliar to us, but they're familiar not only to the New Testament authors, but to the earliest New Testament readers. And I think of the book of Jude, for example. Mm -hmm. Jude has some bizarre stuff in early on where he talks about uh, he's using illustrations. You know, you remember when the archangel Michael was debating with the devil over the body of Moses. And he speaks of it in such a way that he assumes his readers know what he's talking about. You and I read that, and I'm like, we're like, yeah, I don't know where that comes from. <laughs> is that the living <laughs> Bible, or where, where on earth is that? He's assuming his readers know that that's coming from the Testament of Moses. Right. He quotes from First Enoch chapter 1. As an authoritative and reliable source for his point, I don't know if we could say it's scripture for him, but he's making appeals. We have New Testament authors who are not only familiar with these writings, but assuming that their readers are familiar with some of these writings. Right. And in that respect, it opens up a window into thinking, I want to get into the literary thought world of New Testament authors. So that's one point. I think another point is to sort of think about Christology uh, or what, what we come to be know as Christology or at least Messianism in the first century. We know that Jesus is referred to, for example, as the son of David. And in, in the Gospel of Matthew, he's called son of David a whole bunch of times. Sometimes it's at the triumphal entry in Matthew chapter 21. Sometimes it is in healing context. Son of David, have mercy on us in, in, in terms of healing. And we look at where the son of David comes from. And it, of course, it comes from 2 Samuel chapter 7. But those traditions evolve outside of the Bible and subsequent right. to the Bible, where we see, for example, in the Dead Sea Scrolls reference to to their understanding of Son of David. And I think the most clear example of what some Jews, and, and I use that term, that expression very carefully, not what 
the Jews of Jesus' day believed. We got to be careful about right. saying that, just like we don't want to say what the Christians of 2021 believe, because do you mean evangelical fundamentalist Baptists? Do you mean liberal practicing Roman Catholics? Do you mean Eastern Orthodox? All of these are Christian. We have to speak with some clarity to say there were some Jews in a writing from the first century BC, BCE, who wrote a collection of poetry that looks like the book of Psalms, but they're called the Psalms, not of Psalms of David, but the Psalms of Solomon. And Solomon didn't write it. Solomon was dead and buried by the time these these things were written. But they talk about a messianic son of David in the 17th Psalm, Psalms of Solomon 17, which will come and smash unrighteous rulers and establish legitimate kingship in Israel and restore right sacrifices. Now, when we think of that, we, we get an understanding of, again, what some Jews thought about the son of David. But when we come to the New Testament and we hear that Jesus is called son of David, if there are Romans who are familiar with some of these rumors of what some Jews think about the son of David, and they hear these crowds referring to Jesus as the son of David, it sort of makes sense that Jesus can sometimes in the New Testament be politicized or that we expect that Simon Peter doesn't want Jesus to be suffering and dying for sins as a Messiah. They're going to have very different kinds of expectations. But it may not help us to understand specifically what the Jews to whom Jesus is speaking with in the New Testament understand about Son of David. But it helps us to open the window of, to think, oh, so that's, when we read in the New Testament, we see Son of David, we just think of Jesus. We know he's kind and gentle. He's harsh with the Pharisees, but ultimately a bruised reed he will not smite. But there were other Jews from shortly before the time of Jesus that had a very, very different view of the Son of David. And so these are just two examples that, to my mind, help us to see that the literature of the pseudepigrapha, of Second Temple Judaism in general, and of the pseudepigrapha in particular, can really shed light onto, to some degree, what's similar and also what's different, but at least what's familiar to the New Testament readers. It reminds me of uh, when I was in college and Shaquille O'Neal was a big deal playing basketball. <laughs> And everybody talked about how Shaquille O'Neal was big, but you never really got a sense, I never really got a sense of just how big until I saw a life-size poster of him in my college dormitory. Now, I'm six foot three, but I stood next to that life-size poster of Shaquille O'Neal, and I got some context for how big Shaquille O'Neal is. For me, understanding the Jewish literature, like the pseudepigrapha and other writings from Second Temple Judaism, is providing some context to have a better understanding of the New Testament. I liked your analogy of your life-size poster of Shaq. Uh, when I was in eighth grade, I was a fanatical Michael Jordan fan and Los Angeles Lakers fan. It was the year that the Lakers repeated. And so my parents took me to Chicago to see the Bulls play the Lakers for my birthday. And um, we were on the floor, actually, right where the players were coming in and out. You know, I stood next to Kareem. And, <laughs> you know, I I was 6'5 in the eighth grade. And so I, I'm sitting here, but... You know, you see him on television and he looks slim and everything. And it looked like somebody had, not only did he just stretch forever, but it looked like he had basketballs for shoulders. I mean, it was just unbelievable. So I, I, I like yeah. the, I get your, your analogy of the context. Let me ask this question. You made the comment that a lot of our, a lot of the pseudepigraphic works are in translation. And... One of the things that I've always wondered about, and I'd like to see what your thoughts are, and you also mentioned that they were being preserved by Christian communities in these various language centers. What do you think that the fact that we find these works, that at least at some level started out in Judaism, in translation being preserved by 
the Christian communities outside the land of Israel. What does that say about the Jewish diaspora? Well, that's a great question. And actually, I'm going to answer your question with raising more questions. (laughs) (laughs) The interesting thing about that, Mark, is that very few of these Jewish texts are preserved outside of Christianity. Right. In other words, the Jewish diaspora are not preserving Jewish works for whatever reason. And that's something I really don't know and don't understand. But for some reason, in Christian traditions, in in a variety of Christian traditions, not only are these works preserved, but kept in manuscripts and codices. And some work still has to be done in this, and some work is being done in this. For example, Liv Lead, Liv Ingeborg Lead, is doing really important work on the placement of uh, the work of Second Baruch. Now, Second Mm -hmm. Baruch is a Jewish apocalypse that's written shortly after the destruction of the Jerusalem temple in Israel in 70 CE. But it's only preserved, aside from a few Greek manuscripts, it's preserved in Greek and then translated into Syriac. And the only full text that we have of that is in Syriac, which dates from the 6th or 7th century, in a Christian codex, a Christian book, and a handful of liturgies. In other words, there are excerpts taken from this Jewish work preserved in Syriac by Christians that are being put into the liturgical worship cycle in Christian context, but entirely lost to Judaism. So to me, I don't know. The short answer is I don't know what it says about Jewish diaspora, but it does speak to the abiding interest that the the concerns raised by many of these texts have for communities that preserve them. In other words, even though they're written in a different language, in a different context, there are later Christian communities outside of the land of Israel that are still seeing value for the message of these texts and utilizing them, not just for the learned scholars in the academy and in the monastery, but even to some degree in various contexts of Christian worship. Well, and I think, you know, to that end, I think at least what it should force us to do is to recognize that probably the Jewish diaspora was at least as multidimensional as Judaism within the land. And as you know, often many scholars will reduce the Jewish diaspora primary to Philo of Alexandria. But I think the fact that we find these works outside the land at least speaks to some of those themes, like you were saying, and the ideas were at least valued by communities outside of the land as well. And that's why they get there and they are preserved. Right. Uh, Especially if if some of our listeners are uh, thinking about this material as Christians, as as church-going people, it speaks to the fact that, as I've mentioned before, it's we can't simply speak of a Judaism in the first century. Some of these pseudepigrapha are very adamant about obedience to the law of Moses and expand on it considerably and embellish it and clarify and fill in gaps of places that are unclear. Others, I'm thinking of, for example, the Sibylline Oracles, which uh, some of those are Christian, but some of them are clearly Jewish and date from the first century CE. They're Jewish works that are what we would consider syncretistic. They have no problem with making reference to Moses in addition to some of their accolades to secular or even other religious traditions. Right. So the the notion of Judaism as a uh, sort of a monolithic a belief system in the first century to which Christianity is reacting is really defied by Judaism itself in these texts. Well, we could keep going on on the pseudepigrapha, but I want to shift gears to your work on Matthew, because I think that this will also be of real interest to our listeners. And how did you, I know you. your doctoral work was on Matthew, you're writing the, the word biblical commentary right now on Matthew. What drew you 
to working with the Gospel of Matthew? Well, to that list, I could also add that my son is named Matthew. So <laughs> I really like Matthew. For me, Matthew has the the narrative of Jesus' life that is highly contextualized in a physical, geographical, political, as well as religious and literary setting. So it brings what fascinates me all to bear in one particular setting. And I think one of the things that has been debated for years in the Gospel of Matthew is Matthew's relationship to Judaism. And again, not the Judaism, but Judaism in general how did Matthew as an author perceive himself? And so there's a there's a book that I co-edited last year with Anders Runison called Matthew Within Judaism. And that is that the, the notion there is that Matthew very much saw himself not as breaking from Judaism, but very much in continuity with Judaism, a Judaism that is framed and shaped in terms of uh, probably a, a Christocentric or Christotelic reading of the Hebrew scriptures, but doesn't see himself in any way, I think, as breaking from the traditions of the Hebrew Bible, but rather, in a sense, climaxing the traditions of the Hebrew Bible. So in that respect, I find Matthew to be fascinating because as we come to these texts, let's just say, for example, uh, let's talk about the Dead Sea Scrolls and the community rule or uh, works like 4QMMT, which speaks about the understanding of the Jews at Qumran and their understanding of the law and seeing themselves as being opposed to the, the understanding of the law held by other Jews. Matthew fits within that context of seeing himself as a Jew in disagreement with other Jews. Second Baruch fits into that context as well. So I think my fascination with Matthew is that it's so contextually situated as a narrative because of its emphasis and its preoccupation with the fulfillment of Scripture, of texts from the Hebrew Mm -hmm. Bible, but also his deliberate effort to include things that are familiar to a first century Palestinian Jewish context. And at the same time, inverting some of the traditions. Remember, he's rather adamant about, do not think that you can claim Abrahamic descent as uh, grounds for avoiding the wrath to come. So in that respect, he's probably uh, overturning some understanding. He uh, claims the Gentile Magi in heroic terms, whereas Herod the Great, who he calls, quote, King of the Jews, is a villain. So there's certainly some overturning of it, but it's very historically, theologically, and literarily situated. And so that's what really brings the fascination to me. If you're enjoying the Windows into the Bible podcast, I want to tell you quickly about another great and affordable resource that we offer to help deepen your study and understanding of the Bible. The Windows into the Bible book club and Bible study is a virtual on-demand book club and Bible study like no other. Each month, the book club and Bible study reads a book chosen specifically to enhance your understanding of the world of the Bible. And that book is paired with a digital Bible study. It's all recorded and saved so that you can make progress no matter when you begin. For just $10 a month, every member of the book club and Bible study receives a Bible study, notes and videos delivered to your inbox three times a week a members-only Facebook group for discussion and more resources, two live virtual discussions with the book club each month led by that month's expert or author. All materials are available on demand so you can read and learn at your own pace. This is just the low-stress, no-fuss Bible study and book club that you've been looking for. It's designed to deepen your study and understanding of the Bible for just $10 a month. 
Go to WITBUniversity.com to join today. That's WITBUniversity.com. See you there. When you work with Matthew, when would you tend to date the writing of Matthew's gospel? And I guess as a follow-up to that, what kind of is your framework, both in terms of the date and the literary composition of Matthew's gospel? Yeah, <laughs> that's another question that I'm still thinking about. I'm, I've, as you've mentioned, I'm writing a commentary on Matthew, but I'm only in uh, chapter three. So uh, I have to get into the real meat and potatoes of uh, 23 through 26 to really get more clarity on that. But I think one thing that is a factor, so I'll, I'll, I'll try to clarify my current views on that. One of the important factors that a lot of Christians or even readers of the Gospels don't recognize is that even though Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John occur first in the New Testament, uh, they're written later, uh, mm -hmm. or at least most likely written, the earliest one, probably the Gospel of Mark, is written after the writings of Paul. So, it describes events that occur first. The letters are written, or at least some of the letters of Paul are written. And then there are other writings, of course. And then the Gospels are written later. We tend to think of the Gospels as sort of the narrative, and then the letters as sort of later extrapolations. But actually, the Gospels are written after some of the letters of the New Testament. So in that respect, we think that the gospel authors aren't necessarily writing in a manner to present material that the readers didn't already know something about. Mm -hmm. um, and, and that helps us to think a little bit more about how gospels are put together. So where does that put us then in terms of dating? Um, and what does it put us in terms of literary relationships? Part of the question of, of how that is answered has to do with how one views whether Matthew has used Mark or and or another unknown source, commonly called Q, which just is a it just stands for the German word Quella, which means source. So I, I do believe that Matthew has used Mark, and then that raises the question: Well, when does Mark date? <laughs> um, so I'm not I'm not entirely sure. And has he used Q? I, I think he has used another source, uh, and I'm happy to call it Q. I'm much more cautious about reconstructing Q and then talking about Mathean redaction of Q. So I'm happy to identify as uh, or attribute Mathean material that is found in Luke to Q. I'm just a little cautious about trying to reconstruct it. So I do believe there was a Q of some kind, perhaps literary, likely literary, but reconstructing it, I think, is kind of nebulous. In terms of dating, one of the issues, as I said, is its relation to Mark, so it would have to be after Mark. Another issue is whenever uh, Matthew makes reference to the destruction of Jerusalem, whether he is writing after the fact or whether he is anticipating it. Now, for some people, this is a theological issue. Right. Could Matthew have predicted the destruction of the temple? But even though I can share that theological view that I think that Matthew can anticipate the destruction of the temple, I don't think you needed inspiration or you needed to be a supernaturally inspired author to anticipate that what's happening with the Romans in Judea and Galilee, and particularly in Jerusalem, even in the middle of the first century, even in the 30s, of the first century CE, you didn't need to be a prophet to anticipate that some destruction is going to happen. Um, right. So I would put less weight on determining whether the, the references to the destruction of their city is a hindsight reference to destruction of the temple, or if it's anticipation, I would put more weight on the literary aspect. And so in that respect, I would probably have to say late 60s to early 70s. Okay. In terms of the writing of the gospel. In terms of the writing of the gospel of Matthew. But again, I'm only in Matthew chapter three. <laughs> and uh, so tune in uh, some point down the road whenever I get further along and, and I'm better informed. What I'm trying to do, as I try to do with every passage, is let the evidence sort of lead the dance. 
and hold the evidence loosely until I have all the evidence available. Well, can you talk a little bit about your method? How do you, you're, you're writing this commentary, how do you approach pulling apart a passage, exegeting a passage? Because I think one of the things that our listeners are interested in is understanding how a scholar approaches the Bible and begins to do the excavation work of the text necessary to begin to say, this is what was said, this is what was meant or likely meant by what was said. So can you talk a little bit about your own method of how you work through you know, a passage. What are you, what are your questions when you come to it? Well, my, my main question is always, what is Matthew trying to say? What is he trying to say? What is he trying to say? And so I think that probably three quarters of my method is slowing down and paying attention because we all come to texts with presuppositions, with expectations. I think I know what it says. You know, we do this. I do this with my wife all the time. I think I know what she's going to say. And so I kind of tune her out. We do that with the Bible, too. We think we know what it says and we tune it out and we sort of ride roughshod. So my biggest skill set that I'm working on is just slowing down, paying attention, seeing what he's trying to say. So my practice is this is a the word biblical commentary. It has technical aspects and it also is trying to equip preachers. But I'm better at the more technical aspects and then sort of trickle down to the more practical. So right now I'm starting a section on chapter 3, verses uh, 13 through 17, where Jesus is baptized. And the first thing I'm doing is laying out the text and examining all the significant textual variations. So where do different manuscripts have slightly different readings? And then try to do some detective work to see, well, where do these readings come from? And a a lot of the different readings will come in where a later scribe is just trying to make sense of what Matthew's trying to say and trying to clarify. And the scribes like to explain and they like to clarify. They don't like to make things shorter and more ambiguous. They want to expand and they want to clarify if they're going to make changes to their original. So I try to do it a little detective work to explore what are the variations. Another thing I like to do is to look at some of the earliest manuscripts. And I'm working from uh, their digital resources now where I can look at manuscripts that date from about the 5th century CE and earlier, and especially the papyri. And what I'm looking for are the use of what's called nomina sacra which is simply an abbreviation system. Instead of saying Jesus, Iota, Eta, Omicron, Upsilon, Sigma, uh, some scribes will just use the first letter and the last letter and draw a little line over it. Now, in some contexts, like in the Dead Sea Scrolls, you'll see that occur with the divine name of Yahweh, where mm-hmm. they'll just use uh, four little stars for the for the four letters of of the name of Yahweh. That's not necessarily what's happening here, but it is giving an indication of how they did abbreviations. And I think more importantly, um, where there are divisions or spaces in paragraphs in some of these manuscripts, it helps us to understand how some of the earliest scribes understood the thought units and how they held together. So I'm using some of those as hermeneutical tools to interpret the passage. Did they understand verse 13 to go with verse 14 or verse 13 belongs better with verse 12? Those sorts of things. So that's right. at a very fundamental kind of level. And then I, what I really try to do is spend a lot of time just understanding the text in the context of Matthew. So if he says this is in order to fulfill, I'll try to find what he's trying to fulfill. And so I I have some Bible software, which enables me to go back into the Old Testament passages and explore them in their context and frequently see that what Matthew is doing is taking his own version of an Old Testament passage or conflating one Old Testament verse with another. You know, we might see, for example, if you look at an English translation in a study Bible, might give a footnote that says, oh, this is from Isaiah 7.14. And you go back to Isaiah 7.14, and it doesn't quite say it the same way Matthew's saying it. 
So what's he doing? Those are red flags to me that says Matthew's doing something a little bit creative. And also to look at some of those contexts in the Old Testament. But ultimately, my guiding principle is, what is Matthew trying to say? What's he trying to say to his original readers? Now, of course, while I'm trying to understand what Matthew's saying to his original readers, I have to try to figure out what we can know about the original readers. We can speculate, but all that we know about Matthew's original readers and his intended readers is what we get from Matthew himself. So I'm trying to reconstruct things where, again, as I mentioned earlier, there are things that Matthew assumes that his readers know about. Son of David, they assume that everybody knows who David is. Matthew assumes that his readers know who all those people are listed in the genealogy of 1, 1 through 17. So there are some expectations on the part of the reader where we can reconstruct who that reader might be. And ultimately, where I see ideas that are raised, for example, John the Baptist calls the Pharisees, you brood of vipers. How were vipers understood in the Old Testament or in some of these Jewish texts? Those sorts of things, looking at particular words and phrases. And also what I'll do is compare Matthew to Mark and Luke especially where Matthew is probably drawing from Mark, we see that there are times when Matthew words things differently than we find in Mark. And sometimes when you see when an author preserves identical or even makes slight changes to his source, that can help us to understand some of what the author is trying to communicate to his readers. Ultimately, I try to go dead last at looking at commentaries and articles and monographs, (laughs) not only because there's an enormous amount, but I want to try to just deal with the text on its own merits first uh, and, and let the text raise the issues. And I try to resolve the issues as best I can and muster in these other uh, commentaries, books, articles, which are essential. But all I'm trying to do is use those to help me to better understand the text. I certainly don't address every theory that is speculated on or even most of the theories unless I feel that the text really raises that question that needs to be addressed. Well, you know, I appreciate that because I'm often telling students and people that I'm talking to and working with, for me, the same thing, the commentaries, the monographs, the articles, that's the final step. Once I've done my own kind of digging you know, in very much the same way that you're talking about, you know, establishing kind of the text and and then, you know, beginning to explore phrases, language, those types of things. And then, you know, the secondary literature, the scholarly literature is where you can kind of clean up or, you know, look and see maybe people have seen things you haven't or, and you absolutely are right, you have to interact with it. I want to come back, though, to a couple of things that you said a second, because one thing that I see a lot within gospel scholarship is kind of this talking about the Matthean community. And I don't know about you, but I I get a little bit nervous with that personally, because you find a lot of theories and conclusions being drawn based upon these hypothetical readers. Now, obviously, we can infer certain things about readers based upon, you know, the writer um, and how he writes and so forth. But I don't know, where do you fall on these ideas where we're talking about the Mathian community and then all of a sudden we're postulating these different types of communities and so forth, which apart from our inferences of Matthew's gospel, we really don't have any other kind of evidence for. I also have a great deal of caution with that, and I think the caution is primarily methodological, and that is, for our listeners, this is a a method that derives from form criticism um, back in the early part of the 20th century uh, in in German scholarship, and really has evolved and is, is kind of standard fare for gospel scholarship. But what it does is it reads the gospel not not as a narrative about Jesus, but really as a thinly veiled depiction of early Christian communities. 
So when you see, for example, form critics would espouse that when you see Jesus debating with the Pharisees, what that really means is that Matthew's community is having a hard time with with the synagogue in his community. When you see Jesus teaching against divorce in Matthew 18, then uh, it means that Matthew's community is struggling with divorce. And there is something to the notion, we see this, and I, I think about this with some of this Second Temple literature, where some of this literature, for example, the Book of Watchers, or even the Book of Jubilees, or some of the other portions of First Enoch, or the Similitudes, or something like that, where you can sort of see where the author is describing the, the good guys are the ones who are faithful to God, and the bad right. guys are those who are who are the enemies of God, they're disobedient to Torah, you know, they probably don't eat their vegetables, all that kind of stuff. <laughs> and you can read into that and see that really that's probably an author depicting something about himself and his beliefs and his communities and presenting himself as the oppressed good guy. And there's something to that. Whether that kind of method works in a narrative, which is at least purportedly about a person. And Richard Burge says this all the time. He's written sort of a, a very definitive book on the genre of the Gospels. Right. And, and he says that he's been spending his entire career trying to tell people that the Gospels are about Jesus. And as silly as that might sound to our listeners, um, what, what form criticism does is it tries to get us to think about how this reflects an early Christian community. And so I actually share your skepticism and your hesitation, Mark. And, and to say, when I think about what Matthew's trying to say to his original readers, I don't see in it a thinly veiled attempt to depict something about a community that is behind the gospel. I see in it an attempt to form a community that is reading the gospel, mm -hmm. but ultimately trying to give a message about the identity and person of Jesus with respect primarily to the traditions of Israel and the Hebrew scriptures, but also in relation to contemporary Jewish communities of Jesus' own day, which inevitably might bleed onto the readers and the readers' communities. But really, I'm going to try to cling to and keep my hermeneutical tether tied to what the text is trying to narrate about Jesus in his own context, rather than trying to use it as a mirror to read between the lines. And as Richard Bauckham, Richard Bauckham was my doctoral supervisor, and he's really done some definitive work on this issue. It's, it really, it comes down to a mistake of genre. Right. In other words, it's trying to read a narrative as though it were a letter. You could read the book of Philippians and reconstruct what's going on in the Philippian church. Can you read the Gospel of Mark and reconstruct what's going on in Mark's church? Probably not. No, I would agree with you. I, I remember I one of my professors was the late David Flusser, and Flusser always said, as, as it relates to form criticism, it is very, you know, it can be very helpful for us when we come to a study the epistles. Um, but he found it much less so as it relates to the study of the Gospels for the very reasons that you're outlining. This is going to kind of have a couple parts to it, but it'll, it'll probably bring us to the end of uh, our time. It's a big question. You've mentioned several times Jesus's interaction with the Pharisees in Matthew. And you're right. I mean, in Matthew in particular, we find that he's coming up against the Pharisees often. In fact, of course, Matthew's the one that puts together the Pharisees and the Sadducees at times in his narrative. Of course, when we compare some of those stories with what we find in Luke or in Mark, you know, we don't find, you know, the Pharisees mentioned. And so I, I wonder if you could talk a bit about, you know, Jesus and the Pharisees in Matthew. And then that's kind of the A part. The B part of the question is, in light of that, you hear the statement especially when you read the Gospels synoptically with Matthew, Mark, and Luke, you find these statements that are rather unique to Matthew that have a very, um, at least on the surface, a very anti-Jewish lilt to them. So I'm wondering if you could 
after talking a bit about Jesus and the Pharisees in Matthew, kind of say a few words or, or talk a bit how then you see this. Is there an anti-Judaism within Matthew? You've already you know mentioned your book that you and uh, Anders did with Matthew within Judaism. So how do you read you know, some of those statements that are unique to Matthew. Yeah, that's great. I'm actually just opened up to um, one example of Matthew's emphasis on Jesus and the Pharisees, or even just Matthew's emphasis on the Pharisees. And I'm thinking of the the baptism text in Matthew chapter 3, mm-hmm. verses uh, 7 through 10, when John says, you brood of vipers. In Luke's account, Luke and Matthew are the only ones that have this account. In Luke's account, it says that the multitudes came out to be baptized by him, and John says to them, you brood of vipers. Right. But in Matthew's account, and this the wording I'm going to say here is unique to Matthew, when he saw many of the Pharisees and Sadducees coming to the baptism, he said to them. So Matthew's account adjusts the narrative, or or perhaps better to say focuses the narrative on a subsection of these crowds and says that this, this charge is actually prompted by the appearance of some of, or I should say many of the Pharisees and the Sadducees. So there's a there's this this heightened uh, polemic that this charge is triggered by them showing up at John's baptism. So what do we do with that in terms of John's understanding, or Ma- sorry, Matthew's understanding of the Pharisees? Uh, I think there are a couple things. First is we see that the Pharisees are not alone in Matthew's criticism. The Pharisees, the Sadducees, the scribes, the teachers of the law, many of, again, not all, but many of, and that's the part that most people skip, is the many of. Keep in mind that in the context of first century Judea, if anybody's going to come to ask questions about a a religious rite or practice, of course it's going to be the religious leaders. Who else would come to do it? The Romans don't care, and they're not going to go out into the Judean wilderness (laughs) anyhow. So in one respect, it's natural that it would be these people who are coming, and also that Jesus is after them. In in Matthew's gospel, he's constantly railing against them for their duplicity, for their hypocrisy, but not just them because they're Jews, but because they're hypocrites and because they are putting burdens on other people that they themselves are not willing to bear. So when we think about Matthew's polemic against Jews, it's largely against Jewish leadership, and it's largely against the hypocrisy of the Jewish leadership that Jesus is encountering in Judea and Galilee in the first century. So I just, I want to clarify specifically what we're talking about when we talk about what is oftentimes called Matthew's anti-Jewish polemic. Right. Matthew doesn't have an anti-Jewish polemic. He has an anti-hypocrisy polemic. There's polemic against Herod the Great. There's affirmation of Magi. Again, it's heightened because they're Jewish, but because they're hypocritical. And so that's one aspect of it. Another aspect of it I want to highlight is that Jesus in Matthew's gospel has very unkind things to say against the Jewish leaders. He calls them whitewashed tombs, blind guides, hypocrites, but he says something even more harsh to Peter. He calls him Satan. Now, these are very harsh and polemical kinds of language, but let's keep in mind that the the most condemning and negative and critical statement that Jesus lodges against anybody is against his own disciples. Now, it's not as pervasive in Matthew. He calls Peter Satan, and he doesn't say that against any of the Pharisees or Sadducees. So, that leads us to believe that Matthew's polemic is not just against one religious affiliation of people, but against the behaviors, against the beliefs, and against the practices, especially with respect to Jesus' primary concern in Matthew, which at least up until the resurrection is the lost sheep of Israel. And so for readers of Matthew who are wondering, is this anti-Semitic? 
Look at Jesus' heart for the lost sheep of Israel in Matthew's gospel. Don't ignore the polemic against the, the hypocritical leadership, but recognize that he has a heart for the lost sheep of Israel. They are like sheep without a shepherd. Uh, and it's not until after the resurrection that we start talking more explicitly about Gentile mission. So that's how I'd want to frame that kind of conversation. Does that help a bit? No, it absolutely does. It. Um, I, I, I think it's important. I think for me, one of the things that I find in reading Matthew's gospel, and I take on board um, your observation that the criticism is targeting the Jewish leadership. I guess I sometimes find Matthew's treatment of the Jewish leadership a bit monolithic. I find Luke having far more nuance. Yes, within within the Jewish leadership, and then than what you see, frankly, either in Matthew or Mark or John. But I do think that that's you know very helpful, and that's one of the things that I think is. To my mind, I mean, for me personally, I have some big questions that hang every time I I read Matthew, because you're exactly right. On the one hand, especially in Matthew, we find Jesus making some not very nice statements about non-Jews and his mission being focused on the lost sheep of the house of Israel, but yet there's these other wrinkles that are in it and I mean, I don't have a, I, I don't have a set opinion at this point. I it, these every time I read through his gospel, though, it just I keep wondering about his composition and so forth because I think that in many respects, Matthew's gospel may be at least as it as we have it today, maybe one of the more complex, if not the most complex of the four that we have. But I do think that that absolutely is important. And, and and I think of something else that you said earlier, not necessarily in the relationship to the Pharisees, but I think it. we tend to read the Gospels with no context of the world, of the Gospels, mm-hmm. where the Gospel writers make a lot of assumptions about their initial readers, that they knew certain things, they knew how things functioned. And... Sometimes I think that they expected a certain level of nuance would be drawn by their readership, not thinking that, you know, 2,000 years later. um, Yeah, 2,000 years later, somebody's going to be sitting in their air-conditioned apartment in a sky rise in New York City with (laughs) with cable TV on and with with their headphones on listening to their Walkman or what. I mean, just some of this, yeah, it's just... It's light years away. And I think that because of that, we have to always hold it in the possibility that just because we're ignorant of the world that um, the gospel writers are writing about does not mean that their original audience was. Right. That's a great point. And that's where that's where things like even doing travel. Yeah. Like I know you that's your passion is doing travel. And, you know, when people make comments about going to the other side of the Sea of Galilee and hop in this boat and there's a storm. Uh, the evangelists are presuming they have some some concept of what a storm is like on those bodies of water, right. and it, and it's not riding, you know, it's not in a cruise ship um, mm-hmm. where it doesn't matter. But I think your your point is important too about Luke. Uh, Luke is certainly more nuanced, uh, especially when it comes to people in in positions of leadership. He's able to attribute titles and functions to people that Matthew for some reason just doesn't even go to but but you're you're right that he is he is kind of monolithic but one of the things that that I've come to recognize and I, I need to deal it deal with more deeply whenever we get into whenever I get into more polemical chapters of Matthew probably those chapters that make you pause and, and scratch your head a bit is to look at how some of the Jewish texts from antiquity understood other Jews mm-hmm. that were not part of their persuasion. I'm thinking of the sectarians at Qumran. Right. And, and how they even thinking about the idea of proselytism at Qumran, how they even handled texts from the Hebrew Bible that speak about proselytism. Right. Um, and whether that was an actuality or just a theoretical thing. That helps us, I think, to situate things that is in a way that 
religious discourse, even with Jews among Jews, is not as tame in the first century as it is in interreligious dialogue in the West today. Absolutely. To your point, I a number of years ago, I was leading a group of Israeli tour guides to Greece. And of course, you know, we were using as part of our tour, um, really the Acts 16, 17, and 18, Paul's second missionary journey is recorded there by Luke. And one of the co-instructors with me who she trains a lot of tour guides as it relates to Christianity was mentioning, you know, kind of reflecting what you hear some scholars say that, that Luke is very anti-Jewish when he gets into Acts. And I brought up exactly the point that you were making, that if we did not know that the Qumran community were Jewish and we read them disconnected from that, we would assume in many respects that they were anti-Jewish. Right. And what helped me in that conversation was my doctoral advisor, S.D. Eschel, was also on the trip, and she spoke up and said, Mark's exactly right. And and to your point, you're, you look at even the debates that we find you know, recorded and recounted in rabbinic sources between the Pharisees and the Sadducees. Shoot, between the Pharisees themselves, you have this story of the bloodshed that takes place between the house of Hillel and the house of Shammai. Right, right. <laughs> so, right. And, it, and, that's these hard, are, and that's hard for Western readers of the Gospels, even the notion of you can be critical of some Jewish people and still be Jewish. That's absolutely. Not, that's, to Western interpreters, that's sort of, foreign. Yes, <laughs> absolutely. Well, Dan, I could keep on with you for a long time, um, but I just really want to thank you for your time and being on. Everyone, go and get Dan's book, Introducing the Pseudepigrapha of Second Temple Judaism. It is a well-written, excellent introduction um, to the world of the Pseudepigrapha and as he has said, it is an outstanding, well, I'm saying about it, but it is an outstanding introduction to really helping you understand this body of literature that will help you to understand and enter um, the world of the New Testament. So again, Dan, thank you so much. Thank you. It's my pleasure. Thanks, everyone. I'm Mark Turnage, and this is the Windows into the Bible podcast. Don't forget to follow us on Instagram and Twitter at the WITB podcast. You can comment and send us questions, which we will answer on a future episode. Also, you can follow me on Twitter at Mark Turnage. See you next time. We hope you're enjoying the Windows into the Bible podcast. If you are, help us out by rating, reviewing, and subscribing to the show. This helps the show get seen and heard by even more people looking to learn about the world of the Bible. And by subscribing, you make sure new episodes to the podcast show up in your feed as soon as they go live. Give us a rating, a review, and subscribe. And most of all, keep listening. Mark, one of the reasons I wanted to start the Windows into the Bible podcast was to show how, by accessing the world of the Bible, we can better understand the words of the Bible. This philosophy has been at the core of my entire career because I know from firsthand experience how knowing the world of the Bible completely transforms your understanding and study of the Bible. But nothing not even a podcast, transforms how you read the Bible like actually going to the land of the Bible in person to experience it for yourself. Offering the finest 
on-site, expert-led trips and experiences to the world of the Bible, Biblical Expeditions has taken thousands of Bible readers and travelers from around the world to the lands of the Bible with trips to Israel, Turkey, Greece, Jordan, Italy, and Egypt. If you are a church leader and are interested in organizing a trip for your church or interested in joining a group to the lands of the Bible, reach out and the Biblical Expeditions team can make that happen. Go to biblical-expeditions.com to learn more about Biblical Expeditions and upcoming trips and learn how you can finally transform your study of the Bible by actually going to the land of the Bible on a life-changing trip. That's biblical-expeditions.com. We use the world of the Bible to transform how you read the words of the Bible. been listening to the Windows into the Bible podcast with Mark Turnage. If you have questions related to this episode, tweet them to us using the hashtag WITBQuestions or email them to questions at WITBpodcast.com. You can also find resources related to this and other episodes at WITBpodcast.com. Thanks for listening. <laughs>